This is the ACR 2023 Daily Podcast. Here you'll listen to faculty recordings, discussions, and interviews taken from the ACR Convergence Meeting in San Diego. I hope you enjoy this recording. Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope here at Room Now, live in San Diego at hashtag ACR23. I'd like to talk to you about tick twos. And the tick twos aren't ticking me off at all. They seem like really great oral drugs. There's a couple things I want to talk about. So there was a, a late breaking poster, poster L12, and it looked at a new tick two. It was TAK hyphen. 279. And what that tick 2 showed was compared to placebo and active psoriatic arthritis, it had the same improvement of PASI about 50%, got an ACR, a PASI 75. It had about the same improvements of the other tick 2 on the outcomes for psoriatic arthritis, like ACR responses. So the question that I have is two questions. Number one, do we need another tick 2 Number two, where would we put it? And number three, which one would we use? And I think it brings up one other question, and Dr. Conway has talked about it on on Twitter, actually. And the question is, should we be doing placebo-controlled trials or giving a standard of care in patients with active disease? So if there was a trial of one tick 2 versus another, it would have to be a very large trial to even show non-inferiority. But maybe we should allow standard of care. So I think the take-home message is we've got another tick two and phase two look pretty good. If phase three does, we'll have another one on the market for psoriatic arthritis. Maybe they'll extend into other things like lupus. But one of my comments, a commentary on lots of clinical trials, well-designed trials, but should we have an active comparator instead? So please follow me at Room Now, uh, Janet Burdo, and have a great day. Thank you. Hi everyone, this is Aurélie Nage from Glasgow. I am delighted to be here with you today. I'm just out of the imaging session, uh, which is actually really exciting. So I wanted to share with you this um, brand new imaging technique. I mean, obviously it's not really yet ready for clinics, but I think it's very promising. And so um, it's called, yeah, I have to look at the, the paper, because it's, it's a really complicated name, really. It's called Multispectral Optoacoustic Tomography. Um, MSOT. Basically, it's an ultrasound. It, you know, you use an ultrasound probe, so it's not it's not invasive whatsoever. But because of the the, the, the hybrid imaging technique that it is, um, it uses sound and light, and so basically, it it it's, it sounds it sends some form of um, wave to the tissue, and the tissue send some um, acoustic uh, information back. And so um, what the authors of this abstract, it was abstract 7 and 50, um, what they what they wanted to do was to see whether or not they can um, define antithesis with this new imaging technique. And um, instead of just looking at psoriatic arthritis patients and healthy controls, they also included a group of uh, patients with psoriasis that didn't have any musculoskeletal symptoms. And so it was 30 people in each group. And actually, uh, what they found out was really interesting. Um, so, first of all, they wanted to validate this technique in, 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 uh, in a very well-known setting, so they used synovitis and they did validate it, but then um, 
this technique allows you to not only see the the structure um, anatomically but also to assess what is their metabolic composition and so you can see how much oxygen you have there how much hemoglobin oxygenated hemoglobin um, lipids and collagen and so what I've observed is a few different findings. So first of all, in PSA patients, um, entesis um, and entesitis, we're looking with um, more lipids, showing that there had been transformation there, um, showed less collagen, showing that, you know, they... Maybe there's some damage there um, already at a very early stage, um, but also more oxygenation, and that was a sign of you know more vascularization. However, this wasn't translated necessarily with um, power Doppler, and the reason that they um, gave for that is that it apparently it is much more sensitive than um, a conventional ultrasound is. And so the other thing that was really interesting is that these findings were also similar in psoriasis patients. And that, I think, is really cool because that emphasizes this whole spectrum and continuum between, you know, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis and what's happening in antithesitis even in people that do not have symptoms. So obviously, it was the first study of its kind. It needs validation. But I think it's pretty cool. And I also also think that it wouldn't be really, really hard to implement that in, in practice if we wanted to because it's non-invasive and it would just be a matter of, you know, changing probes and so on um, to do that uh, maybe maybe in the future. Um, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here. Um, I encourage you to tune to rumnow.com for more content and follow me on Twitter at Aurelie Raimo. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope here at Room Now Live at ACR San Diego, which is just a lovely place to have a convention. I wanted to talk to you about one of the plenaries. It's near and dear to my heart because it's a Canadian study, but it isn't as near and dear because I don't do point of care ultrasound. So this is the plenary abstract number 0726. And it was a very well-designed study for the curriculum for musculoskeletal bare minimum criteria of comp for rheumatology trainees or PGY45s. And there was um, a lot of consensus, but there were a lot of point-of-care ultrasound experts that participated. It seemed like in the Q&A there wasn't a patient that participated. That would be great, maybe in the future. And mostly they were experts, so the experts had a consensus. A couple things that they wanted were competency of small joints of hands and feet. They didn't have competency of the knee. Uh, the a presenter was asked about that, and some of it might be very well because we can examine the knee pretty easily, but that's not what the answer was. She said maybe starting with small joints would be easier. However, what I've done is a Room Now poll, and I hope that you'll participate. But so far, I've said, do you think there should be a minimum competency in POCUS, point-of-care ultrasound? And there's leaning towards yes, but a little bit of no with hocus-pocus. So we'll see over time. Anyway, follow us here in San Diego at Room Now. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Yusuf. Uh, I'm from Leeds. Uh, I'm reporting for Room Now at uh, sunny San Diego uh, for ACR Conference 2023. Uh, today, uh, there have been uh, plenty of uh, abstract session ha happening in the conference, uh, and uh, one uh, abstract that caught my eye uh, was presented uh, in the uh, SLE uh, treatment session, uh, and this uh, is an abstract uh, number 07. 
1081. Uh, and today, um, I've been joined by uh, the presenter of the App Strikes, Dr. Amit Saxena. Uh, hello, Amit. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How about you? Not too bad. That's good. And congratulations uh, for your presentation today. Thanks, I appreciate it. Good. Um, so what we'll do, um, we're just going to ask about uh, the background of the study and what motivated you to look into this matter. Yeah. So, you know, we all know that steroids, glucocorticoids are necessary for treatment for lupus nephritis. And it's important to treat nephritis aggressively because there's been a lot of studies that show that early responses to treatments are associated with long-term uh, better prognosis. Uh, and so kind of classically, we used to use uh, higher doses of uh, glucocorticoids up front, usually one milligram per kilogram per day of a prednisone equivalent. But more recently, there have been several clinical trials that have utilized lower doses of those steroids, uh, more in the order of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per day. And there was one very small open-label study uh, that, that looked at this and did show an equivalence in renal response rates. But generally, there hadn't been a ton of big studies to really compare those two doses. And so really all I did was to look back at some of these more recent studies that uh, utilize some of these lower doses of glucocorticoids and compare the outcomes in those studies relative to the outcomes that we saw in some of the older studies that we used a higher dose of steroids. Okay. Um, so you were looking uh, in terms of a uh, pool analysis of data from four randomized control trials, were you? Yeah. Exactly, uh -huh. and we just used the published data from that. That's good. Um, could, would you like to um, summarize your main results? Yeah, so the main thing was that the overall responses, the renal responses were similar in the groups that used the high and the low doses of glucocorticoids. And so we had, you know, over 300 patients and over 500 patients in those two groups. Uh, and we looked at several different ways to look at the, out, the outcomes. Uh, the, chron uh, the complete renal response definitions were different between these studies, but they all reported one where at least you were trying to get to a UPCR of less than 0 0.5. Uh, and in those uh, uh, CRR 0 0.5 numbers, again, there was no statistical significance between the high and the low dose groups. And then I also just looked at the, uh, the overall ability to achieve a UPCR less than 0.5 without any other definitions. And in that group, too, there was no significant difference between those high and the low groups. And then I think the main part that kind of pushed this a little bit over the edge is that the, the rates of the significant or severe adverse effects were, um, were higher in the groups, in, the, in those patients that received the higher dose of the steroids. And so both the overall SAEs and also the ones related to infections, the infection SAEs, were statistically significantly higher in, the, in those patients in the, from the groups that got the higher doses of steroids. And uh, how do you account for the heterogeneity in terms of the trial? Because they're all four different trials, is it? Yeah, that's probably the number one limitation is that there's going to be some variability here. And so not not all of the studies uh, had the exact same inclusion and exclusion criteria, but somewhat interestingly, and again, you can't really take too much out of this, but those lower dose uh, glucocorticoid groups actually had some factors that made it seem like it might be harder to achieve uh, a, a UPCR of less than 0 0.5 or a, or a renal response rate. So some of those studies included patients that needed to have higher uh, UPCRs at the baseline. There were some stricter uh, steroid criteria for tapering afterwards, and the high dose groups also so uh, utilized a higher dose of mycophenolate in the, as part of their standard of care regimen. 
Oh, so this is really fantastic news because of uh, you know after using you know remission induction with uh, some IV metal press and then when you're trying to initiate someone with steroid you can actually use like, you know lower dose and it's sort of comparable efficacy compared to the higher dose uh, with fewer side effects. So I think this is really good news for in our patients. So I'm just wondering uh, in terms of um, uh, the, you know the you know where where, where do you go for, for next uh, in terms of the studies? Any anything that you're planning? You know I think if we can get more data there. There are some unpublished data from trials that have been done, and so if we can get some of that data and add that, it will just increase more power. Um, but uh, hopefully the patients themselves are similar enough uh, that we can kind of say that, you know, even though we're not looking at the patient-level data, that we can still use, say that these are comparable groups and kind of make this claim. Uh, you know, we were just looking at the arms where patients were receiving the standard of care, not the experimental arms, obviously, so that we can compare them for that reason, too. Yeah, it's got one last final uh, question before we finish. Um, so we're now saying like, you know, so it's maybe possible to start someone on a lower dose steroid. And I'm just thinking in terms of like tapering later on, do you think, you know, apart from, you know, the endpoints such as renal response, do you think like, you know, requirement of low dose prednisolone should be a target in the next trials and, and, and like clinical practice? What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, one of the things that also kind of is important to remember is these trials, the low dose steroid trials did use the IV pulse in the, in the outset. Uh, so that could be part of the reason why you're able to get away with lower doses after but also that would hopefully entail the ability to use some of those uh, shorter tapers or more aggressive tapers. And some of the studies did have more aggressive and less aggressive tapers. I didn't get into that too much because that part wasn't really published in the papers. Uh, but I think if we could get that information, we might be able to do more with that information, that data. Oh, uh, thank you so much for you know, joining us today. And you know, we've learned so much. And congratulations again with the abstract. And um, yeah, so uh, t thank you for listening to our interviews. Uh, and you can follow us at now for more uh, coverage uh, for uh, the conference content. Okay, bye bye. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I'm at the ACR meeting in San Diego, 2023, and I have with me Amanda Green. And she's amazing because she's been living with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis for many years. Thank you, Amanda, for having me interview you and just coming here and letting me talk with you. Thank you. I'm happy to share my patient experience. And, you know, Amanda, you have um, a poster here at the ACR. Could you tell us a little bit about your story and how this poster came to be? Sure. Well, my story is I am a patient advocate with Lupus and Allied Diseases Association, which is a nonprofit that amplifies lupus patient voices. And from my advocacy, I was able to share my patient's story. And when they asked for patient perspective posters, I had a great idea, a little creative, a little off the wall. I wasn't sure I would get accepted. But my patient poster is here at ACR 2023, and it's called Lupus with Slime how increasing my range of motion and improving my quality of life with SLE with slime. Slime. So slime is the stuff that my like kids make and like glue and contact lens solution and activator stuff. Did you make your own slime or did you buy your slime? I, I made my own slime, but it was a little too sticky. So um, a friend of mine started a slime company I started using her slime, and it, like my favorite is cloud dough. It's not so sticky. I don't know if you know there's different types of slime. Absolutely. <laughs> if you're a slime expert, I'm an adult slimer. So if you're in the know, if you know, you know. If you don't, cloud dough, cloud or cloud dough is, very, is the best for beginners. 
So tell me what you would do um, to loosen up your joints because, you know, it's about activity. Um, sometimes we send our patients to therapy in order to get them to be more active. Well, during lockdown, and I, I, I was usually going to physical therapy, but during lockdown, I, my physical therapist couldn't touch me. And so I was starting to get frozen shoulder. And so I literally started kneading the slime with my hands. And then if you know how slime works, excuse me while I stretch the mic. You know, soon I was doing tricks and flips and... That's amazing. I, I don't know. You seem a little young. Maybe you don't remember sla slam dancing. <laughs> slam dancing. I was slime dancing during the lockdown. I was finding... I was moving because I knew that once I was moving my arms, my leg, my shoulders, my legs and knees wanted to join me, which, trust me... You're a rheumatologist. You understand what your patients go through. They do not want to move their legs. They do not. But if you find joy and something fun, I didn't realize I was moving. I didn't tell my body this is exercise. I love that. So um, I'm having fun. One thing, Amanda, that I want you know our audience to know because you know many of our audience members um, are healthcare providers. And we take care of patients who have arthritis, who have autoimmune diseases. But, you know, we don't really consider too much about, like, what it's like to be a patient. So if you could tell them the top three things you wish all providers would know, what would they be? Top three? Top three. I know there's probably 1,000, but <laughs> I'm just going to try and narrow it down to the well, top three. I would ask your patient how are you doing and really I know you I know you do but when you say how are you doing a lot of times you guys worry about our body and how our range of motion is doing and sometimes our emotions are involved too our mental health is tied to our physical health and worrying about or worrying about that being concerned with that is part of my lupus journey was finding the balance between my physical health and my emotional health. Rheumatologists can also, for nutrition, you don't, because if you count how, like your hand, I, I could show you my handful of medicine, but then how much food do I put in my mouth every day? A lot more than a handful. So I started considering what food I put into my body. And food is fuel, food is medicine. So if you, your patients aren't saying, what else can I do to help my what else can if your patients aren't asking you maybe you can ask your patients how willing are you to collaborate with me would you be willing to try a change in diet would you be willing to try going to physical therapy once a week if that just something to get you moving sometimes they just need an appointment and something if you find joy it's like hey do you find joy dancing is, is your thing walking it's like if I've got a lupus walk coming up oh no I have to train for it Shouldn't I be training for my lupus walk all year long, technically? The answer is yes. I know that was a rhetorical question. I know, I know better. And now I, I was in training for ACR. And as soon as ACR is over and it's November, I'm in training for Lupus Awareness Month. Like there's always going to be something to be in training for because I'm aging with lupus which is something that I don't know if you're studying or not. I know we're, we're studying, you know, pediatric lupus, which is all very important, but aging with lupus because now the treatments are getting better and we're living longer. So one of the things I'd like another, so my top three would be movement, 
you know, getting getting exercise. Food is fuel. Like, if your patients aren't asking, maybe you could mention nutritionist or change in diet. And then mental and emotional health, I guess. Oh, my God. There's, that was too, That's my amazing. Country. I have so many more, but... I know. Uh, so, <laughs> viewers, she is the reason why we're here. She is the reason why we have to work very hard to take care of our patients. So, I hope that you listen to your patients, um, talk to them, understand what's most important for them. In clinical trials now, we're looking at patient-reported outcomes. It's really important because you can prescribe a bunch of things, but if you don't listen to what the patient needs, that's going to be a problem. Thank you, Amanda, so much for being with me. Please follow me at KDow2011 on Twitter, and I hope you have a great rest of the meeting. Hello, my name is uh, Yusuf. Uh, I am from Leeds. Uh, I'm reporting for Room Now at sunny San Diego for the ACR 2023 uh, conference. Um, today, uh, I would like to uh, discuss and summarize about an abstract that I found uh, interesting. Um, so the abstract number is uh, 0782, which was presented at the abstract session uh, in the SLE treatment uh, category. So uh, with, the rep uh, with advancement, in uh, therapeutic uh, field in SLE, um, the shift now uh, has uh, changed uh, from uh, treating uh, our patients with man one medication to combination therapies. And certainly this is true uh, for uh, people uh, with uh, lupus nephritis. Um, so even the uh, recent uh, EULA recommendation also uh, mentioned that uh, there should be uh, consideration uh, to use combination strategies, either belimumab or closporin on top of mycophenolates and also hydroxychloroquine and glucocorticoids. Um, so these all stem from uh, the success uh, of these trials. Um, so therefore, um, the question relies, uh, what if um, if we compare data using higher dose of glucocorticoid steroid in this combination therapy compared to low dose uh, corticosteroids with this combination therapies. Um, so this is a post hoc analysis um, which uh, compare uh, the randomized control trial data of uh, two trials. Uh, one uh, uh, was the ARMS trial uh, which um, look at if, uh, efficacy and safety data of uh, mycophenolate with high dose uh, glucocorticoids uh, versus Aurora one, uh, which uh, a trial that evaluated uh, vocrosporin uh, plus low dose uh, uh, glucocorticoids. Um, so we have to be uh, in my, uh, bear in mind that uh, these trials uh, were 10 uh, years apart, uh, so the investigators could not control of uh, uh, everything uh, for comparison. Uh, for example, in terms of ethnicity, um, you know there are more uh, 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 black uh, and uh, Latino in the uh, Aurora trials, uh, whereas uh, there is more uh, Chinese um, uh, in the um, and, uh, and South Asian uh, in the. Uh, trial. Uh, and also uh, there were more uh, patients on hydroxychloroquine in the Aurora Vocrosporin trial as well. Uh, saying this, uh, in terms of our comparison-wise, um, the, the results show that uh, in patients with uh, low-dose glucocorticoid plus vocrosporin, uh, they achieve a significant um, reduction in proteinuria at the earlier time point at three months, uh, and at six months uh, they, they were nearly uh, the same. Uh, and interestingly also that this approach 
approach also uh, led to uh, less uh, in this, uh, adverse events compared using high-dose uh, glucocorticoid versus MMF. So um, this data, um, although there is some uh, limitation about not being able to control uh, all the confounding factors, uh, are really uh, assuring for our clinical practice. Uh, and certainly uh, this, uh, um, you know, uh, cause uh, for, for optimism that we need to change uh, how we treat our patient uh, presented with active liposynephritis. We really have to be uh, aggressive from the outset by using all this combination therapy uh, with uh, less amount of steroids in order to uh, minimize uh, the risk of uh, organ damage and also damage from uh, steroid toxicity and also improve uh, outcomes of our uh, patients uh, with lupus. Uh, so I hope uh, you find my summary useful uh, and uh, join us um, uh, uh, through Twitter, YouTube and other uh, social media channels uh, for Room Now for more um, uh, coverage of the uh, conference. Uh, thank you for your attention. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow from Northern Virginia reporting live for Room Now from ACR 2023. Um, as we're wrapping up day one here of ACR, I uh, really wanted to point out one uh, really interesting abstract where uh, the worlds of, I think, technology and and rheumatology really uh, intersect. And this was abstract uh, 0530. And this focused on the impact of upadacitinib as measured by a, a wearable medical device focusing on physical activity in patients with ankylosing spondylitis from the Select Access 2 trial. So that was kind of a mouthful, but pretty much what they did is they looked at over uh, 400 patients with uh, either an inadequate response or intolerance to biologics. And they were randomized to receive either upadacitinib uh, 15 milligrams daily, daily or placebo. Pretty much they slapped on either, it was called a, a medical grade wrist worn device, which is think, you know, Apple watch or um, Fitbit and whatnot for about 14 weeks. And they noticed that at 14 weeks, patients treated with upadacitinib had a numerical improvement in steps per day with about 11% improvement compared to placebo. Notably, in patients with a sedentary lifestyle at baseline, a 22% improvement was observed in the upadacitinib group compared to 4% in the placebo group. In patients with an active lifestyle at baseline, numerically better maintenance of daily step counts were maintained compared to placebo where they found that sometimes the step counts declined over time. I think overall, this data is what we expected. You know, we expect that when we make patients feel better, they're going to move more. But I think a few points I wanted to point out are, one, it's good to have actual data, you know, how much more. Uh, and if we can quantify that by steps and the improvement of physical activity and movement, I can see that maybe even being used as a measurement marker in future studies. And I think, you know, we also have way more data now from these smart watches or smart devices. You know, I think Fitbit really was a hot thing, I want to say about a decade ago. You know, I, I looked at my Apple Watch this morning and I noticed there's just so much more data than just steps climbed. Um, you know, quick look, I saw there's obviously stairs climbed, um, there's METs even, there's walking speed, um, walking step length, heart rate, of course, walking asymmetry. They can kind of tell you which side you're leaning on more. Um, I think that's also very interesting for our diseases. Calories burned and even more data that we don't even know how to use yet. Um, I think these devices, you know, we know they're always collecting data in the background, whether we know it or like it. Um, many people have them. 
And there could be even years of data, um, including prior diagnosis and prior drug use that we haven't tapped into yet. So I think very promising initial study focusing on uh, these smart devices and our diseases. I hope to see more in the future and maybe even at this ACR. Uh, but thank you for tuning in to Room Now for live coverage of ACR 2023. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter. Oh, I guess it's called X. X. Follow me on x.com at Dr. RBC. Thank you. Hi, Room Now. I am Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from ACR 2023 in beautiful San Diego, California. And I have the pleasure of talking about everything that's new in 2023 with my dear friend, Dr. Alexis Ogdi. So Alexis, first, how's your ACR going? So far, so good. Fun <laughs> to see all the faces. And San Diego is a great place to have the ACR. I totally agree. But we're East Coasters, so we can say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so tell me what's new in our field of spondyloarthritis. What do you find really salient this year? Yeah, so if I even just think about the trials that are being presented this time. So we have two trials of IV secukinumab. So, you know, obviously the data is not surprising. Secukinumab works compared to placebo in psoriatic arthritis and spinal arthritis. But the nice thing is that IV secukinumab is now available. Yeah. So I think that having a dosing regimen and having that available, especially for our Medicare patients, and, uh, and then also, though, for our patients who are obese. So, yes. you know, we often see that drug kind of wearing off, and so it would be nice to really dose that by body weight now. So. so I actually didn't think about that as being an additional feather in its cap, but I do think that's really important. Yeah. It's access to, though. We have to yeah. be able to get it. Exactly. So that's one. Um, new TIC2 inhibitor being presented, uh, TAC279, doesn't even have a name yet, and it's a phase two study in psoriatic arthritis. And it looks very similar to ducravacitinib, so at least there'll be another uh, TIC2 inhibitor coming. So ducravacitinib still approved for psoriasis, not yet PSA, still waiting for that phase three. Yep. But at least we have a new class coming and gathering more data around that. Good. Now that's awesome. And then third, we have the foremost trial. So another new trial, new patient population in psoriatic arthritis. So this is a sub, uh, subset of patients with psoriatic arthritis with oligoarticular disease. Okay. So first trial in oligoarticular disease, helping us understand how to study this population and maybe the role for where a primalast should be used. Now, you participated in foremost, did you not? Uh, only as in reviewing data and providing right. input. But that's important, right? We need to have the context to build the story for our patients. No, I really appreciate it. I love being here in San Diego, and I love being here with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> As always, but you know me. So, um, and, and check us out on roomnow.com for this and more information, and we will be happy to tell you about anything spa-related and PSA-related as we continue on at ACR 2023. This is Dr. Katherine Dow. Thank you so much for joining me here at ACR 2023 in San Diego. And believe it or not, I was able to snatch the Ashira Blazer. She is the invited lecturer for the Dubois Lecture for Lupus. Please welcome Dr. Ashira Blazer. Thank you so much for having me. You would not have had to find me. I would have I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me today. And could you tell me what you're going to talk about? at the lecture? Yes, yes. So I'll be talking about my work in APO1. So I've been looking at apolipoprotein L1 polymorphisms, which are common genetic risk factors for kidney disease, progressive kidney disease in people of African ancestry. So there's actually an interplay between chronic inflammation and APO1 uh, pathogenesis, such that people who have this sort of inflammatory second hit are more likely to have the um, poor effect of carrying the two variants. Okay. So I'm looking at APO1 and its implications in lupus and then getting into some of the pathophysiology. 
That's incredible. And I know you collaborated with researchers from Africa. Yes. Tell me about that. Yes. So this is a really exciting culmination of that work. Uh, I'm going to be talking about some of the pathogenesis in our um, African patients uh, in Ghana, as well as Nigeria. One of my collaborators, Dr. Day, is here, and we actually got to speak to the SLIC group yesterday about how we need to include um, countries in sub-Saharan Africa and Afro-Caribbean countries um, so that we can better understand this more sensitive population. Now, APOL1, that's a gene that um, gets upregulated and then you have like pathogenesis and it doesn't necessarily cause lupus nephritis, but once patients get lupus nephritis, this upregulation actually can cause a lot worse prognosis. Exactly, exactly. So it's sort of interesting because in rheumatology, we think often the reason why someone gets end-stage kidney disease when they get lupus nephritis is because there's this exuberant inflammatory response. This story is a little bit different because these APOL1 polymorphisms actually increase the risk of kidney damage given that you have an inflammatory response. So it's not a risk factor for lupus, but if you have lupus kidney disease, it's a risk factor for progression. Wow. So how did you get interested in this study? Yeah, so I trained at NYU. I trained with Dr. Jill Bion, and um, she, if anyone knows Jill, she has I love Jill. a lot of personality, right? So um, we were sitting in a Grand Rounds talk about APOL1 by Barry Friedman, and we're just sitting here whispering back and forth to each other, and we're like, I bet this is part of the reason for our patients. We could look at this today, and I didn't know anything about science, so she's like, I'll take you to the lab. We'll teach you how to PCR today. And so... <laughs> I love that. She did. She did. She taught me how to PCR. PCR that day. And so I just started genotyping the patients and then understanding, you know, which patients had what sorts of phenotypes. And um, and I wanted to look at the genetic risk factor in an environmentally different um, condition. And so I was able to collaborate with uh, Dr. Day in Ghana and then it's the rest is history. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. So how does this play? Because the ACR um, paper had interviewed you, mm -hmm. and they also said, please don't use these genes as a way to discriminate against people. Yes. I mean, please explain that. Yes. So I think, you know, one thing that keeps getting propagated is that race is somehow a proxy for genetic background. Right. And we see that black and brown patients tend to have worse disease outcomes. And often people are looking for a reason that's written in the genes. Now, the legacy of structural racism in medicine is the reason why we do that. And a lot of people don't understand that. Right. Um, so what's important to understand is that 13 percent of people carry these variants and of those 20% of them will have, you know, the risk of end-stage kidney disease, right? So it's a substantial number of people, but it's a small subset. So really what we're saying is people who have this genetic background have the risk factor, not African-American people are more likely to get end-stage kidney disease or bad outcomes with lupus because they're just genetically predisposed to bad disease, right? Right, right. And that's what we were taught before. But, I mean, you totally turned my world and my perception upside mm -hmm. down, and I love you opening that world to me. Yeah. So um, little do people know that Dr. Blazer is also the co-chair of DEI yes. and has totally 
been amazing as a co-chair. Tell us about your initiatives, what you've done, and everything. Yes, yes. This, um, this DEI, so this actually started off as a subcommittee of COIN, and I've been working with Dr. Irene Blanco. We've been co-chairs. It's been a labor of love. <laughs> but, um, you know, really, the ACR has been very intentional about understanding equity inclusion in rheumatology, being able to increase the numbers of rheumatologists of color so that we as a body represent the American public. And so, um, you know, we've been putting together this sort of new structure for a committee where we're able to facilitate collaboration across the college so that everyone has a good DEI initiative. So it's really exciting. It's a very novel concept that, you know, the work of DEI is everybody's work. Yes. And um, yeah, and we'll be able to liaison with the board and hopefully facilitate implementation so that we can kickstart those initiatives. Absolutely. And a shout out to Michelle on the ACR staff. Yes who has helped with this so much. Yes. Um, in the last few seconds, Ashira, is there anything you want our viewers to know? Yeah. Um, I think the thing I want everyone to know is that we can learn so much from looking at the entire breadth of the human experience, right? Whether that is in, um, you know, understanding uh, disparities, understanding social terms of health, or, you know, what happens when people are um, under stressful conditions and how that affects the immune system, or it's being able to identify novel genetic risk factors for disease and thinking about our pathogenesis differently. So I think um, representation, inclusivity is so important in rheumatology and in science. Absolutely. And there you have it. This is Dr. Catherine Dow with Dr. Ashura Blazer, who's going to blaze the world. <laughs> and I love this woman. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's follow always both, so fun. Follow both of us on Twitter. Please. Hi, Dr. Janet Pope at Room Now Live at hashtag ACR23 in lovely San Diego. I wanted to talk to you about a late-breaking poster of L03. If you remember, Vexus, which is very vexing, is a syndrome. It's a somatic mutation, and it's becoming more and more described. And the reason I want to talk about this poster is that, first of all, they had 110 patients, which in and of itself in a very rare condition is amazing. But what's more important is these patients needed advanced therapy for treatment. And although there could be channeling bias, it wasn't randomized, it was anecdotal, what was prescribed, it seemed like retention on drug was far worse on TNF inhibitors than on other comparators, and the best retention on drugs seemed to be TNF inhibitors. So what's the take-home message? Number one, Vexus, a somatic mutation disease and syndrome, has a lot of different characteristics. Number two, we probably are missing it in our practices. Number three, if they need treatment, perhaps I'm going to reach for a prescription of a JAK inhibitor over a TNF inhibitor. But let's be honest, there is channeling bias potentially, and we don't have access because it's not an approved indication. However, I think on this, more will come. Thanks, and follow us at Room Now Live. Thank you.